Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and my favorite way to start the day is probably with a maple blueberry scone with a tiny fork. Oh, that's very specific. The tiny fork is the important very part. Specific. That's key. Very key. How often does your morning start that way? You know, probably only once in my life, but I dream of it happening again. This is the best. This is my favorite way to start the day. Elia, you can you can have that if you want it in your life. You know that, right? Like, you know, it's true. There's got to be some perks to adulthood. So a maple blueberry scone with a tiny fork is probably up there among the among the top ones. But if it if you did it every day, you probably would get sick of maple blueberry. No, that's not scone. how that works, Caitlin. <laughs> it's probably okay. like a law of physics that you can't get sick of maple blueberry scones. Mm-hmm. I mean, which I is actually... not even true, but. <laughs> I don't remember the order you put uh, It was in. me. Um, I'm Kristen, okay. and my favorite way to start the day is with a mug of hot chocolate. And I don't even care if it's August in Arizona. I still would like to start my day with a mug of hot chocolate. Kristen, we should open a cafe. We should! That's a really good idea. <laughs> hot chocolate and maple blueberry scones. Mm. To very young children and, and tiny, people tiny who really like sugar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Caitlin, and my favorite way to start a day, I mean, in normal times, it would be to go for a run, and then Ew. to come home and take a shower, and then to go do whatever I wanted. But it's been, like, about 10 years since that's been a rough. Um, But, yeah, I love running in the morning. I did that for a while, but I injured my ankle earlier this last year. No, it's been more than a year. Oh, my gosh. And so I can't run anymore. We're still working on that. So here's the thing. I like running in the morning a lot too, but I can only do it if the sun is up. Like I cannot run in the morning when it's dark. So in the winter, mm-hmm. all my running changes to the afternoon. Are you like an always run in the morning person? I only run in the dark if I'm running with other people because otherwise I assume zombies are chasing me. So like it's just <laughs> too scary to run in the dark, like with intense music and like you can't see anything and there are cars that like come up on you really fast. It's just... I well, use, and I don't even like running where there are cars. I use a I running like, app that deliberately plays the noises of zombies in your ear so that you'll go faster. <laughs> Which is only you would do that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. My name's okay. Cameron, and I guess I'm living Caitlin's dream because my favorite way to start the day is either run or work out, and I have actually been doing that. So. <laughs> Very nice. Well <laughs> kind of a rude flex, but... <laughs> I'm Ben. Uh, my favorite way to start the morning is to walk down to the corner bakery and grab a chocolate croissant and a cup of coffee. We'll have to have that at Aaliyah's and my bakery. Our first customer. <laughs> Our cafe. <laughs> it has to be, it has to be a bakery that's close enough to walk to. Oh, well, that's going to be harder. I don't currently <laughs> live close to, to a bakery. <laughs> <laughs> guys are gonna have to go build one right next to ben's house that would be nice solid plan if there is any we're actually looking to buy a house right now and one of my top things is how close is the nearest bakery so that i can go buy (laughs) breakfast scones yes that is that is a thing you have your priorities in the right place Mm. (laughs) i haven't told never mind it doesn't matter we're gonna podcast right now I have a funny story about buying houses. <clears throat> oh. Anyway. <laughs> is this the murder house one? About. Yes, oh, okay. but Sorry. we don't have to tell it right now. Okay. 
A big welcome to Ben Grange, an agent at the L. Perkins Agency, frequent guest on the show, and Caitlin's agent. Ben, we're so excited to have you on the show. Um, could you take a minute to tell us about some of the projects you're most excited for right now? Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Um, well, and a, a project that I'm excited about right now, we were just talking about this before we started recording. Uh, last year, Caitlin and I sold a project together called uh, A Baker's Guide to Robber Pie which is coming out from Macmillan, Fiewell and Friends. And we just received the cover a couple of months ago, and it is fantastic. I'm very excited I about this book. I am super excited about the um, cover. And this is, a, this is a really special project to me because it was one of the first books that Caitlin sent to me like three years ago, four years ago. I can't even remember. I'm not even um, sure. When did I send it to you? It was when I was working at Jabberwocky before moving to L. Perkins. So it was before um, 2017. Um, yeah. It would have been like two years before 2017. Yeah. So I, I, I first saw this book like five years ago and it's coming out soon. So it's a really exciting process that's been going on. Um, so on the one hand, that's a really hopeful, nice thing to say. But on the other hand, it was five years ago that you first saw it. <laughs> yeah, so if that I guess doesn't that's put a publishing into perspective. Right? I mean, we are, we are such a slow industry. Uh, I mean, it can take you up to two years or maybe even more to write a book. And then once you secure a literary agent or a book publishing deal, it can take another two years to come out. So... Um, it's a long process, but it's a rewarding one. The really fun thing is that uh, Baker's Guide to Robert Pye is the first book of Caitlin's that we read as her writing group when we, when we, when we were in that class together ages and ages ago. <laughs> was that, the, was that the project you started for Brandon's class? Yes, it oh, is. Oh, wow, that's great. I don't know if you told me that before. And it also pairs well with a cafe. Just going to put that out there. It does That's pair a very well. good point. It is a book you could read at a, at a breakfast cafe. Absolutely. But you would have to re eat, be eating a raspberry tart and not oh, a chocolate croissant. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Ben. That's actually a great transition into what we wanted to talk about today on, on today's episode. Um, we want to dig into the nitty gritty of what actually happens behind the scenes once your book has been accepted by an agent, how the agent goes about brushing up the manuscript, getting it ready for publication to send to the publishing houses, the editors of the publishing house. Um, and today we kind of wanted to use as a case study, uh, Caitlin's A Baker's Guide to Robert Pie. All right. Really, we're just, you know, promoting it. <laughs> Everybody pre-ordered this book. This book is promoting, not really. I actually am kind of excited to talk about this because of all of my books, this is one of my favorites that I've ever written. And it has gone through quite a bit of awful surgery to turn into the book that it is now. <laughs> but um, I, I, I remember before I had an agent and before I was published, I used to just love listening to behind the scenes stuff. And so um, we just wanted to go through, I just lost my background you here. lost your scene behind your you. blanket is gone <laughs> oh no anyway um and there's just a towel there now and that's awkward um <laughs> actually my husband first put the towel up for the sound and I was like you can't put a towel there that's awkward and then he put the blanket up and now it's just the towel. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess he was right blanket <laughs> <fail>. <laughs> yeah and so um 
maybe we should talk about how that started. I first sent this book at the time. I don't think he'd even had a name. It was called Evie Baker because that's the name of the main character in it to Ben when he was still an assistant way back when um, at Jabberwocky. And I had just parted ways with my agent and I had just sold a book or a series and um, like didn't have anything in the work. Like I couldn't sell anything else for a really long time, but he read it for me. And um, I don't really know where I'm going with this. Well, what did you think when you first, well, go ahead. Ben. Yeah. Well, this was an like interesting process too, because Caitlin had already sent me a book called second star, which is something that we can talk about as well here. Um, the, the very first draft of, of that book, I had read it and I told her that I enjoyed it. And <laughs> you think it's the first I, draft of that book. <laughs> what I really wanted to offer to represent her on that project, but my, my boss, the president of the agency, told me that I couldn't. So I said, I can't represent this book. Uh, here are the revisions you'd need to make in order for me to represent it. And so she went back and started working on that. And then in the meantime sent me Evie Baker as well. And so I, I kind of went around, went about doing the same uh, process for Evie Baker, which is now A Baker's Guide to Robert Pie. And I read it. I really enjoyed it. I had another uh, assistant, the, the foreign rights assistant in the office, read it for me as well, which I'm going to plug here. Her name is Tay Keller, and she just won the Newberry Medal. Um, I love so her. She, read, she also read Caitlin's work and gave me uh, her feedback to add to it. And she said, I really like this author. You should sign her. And so we both went to the agency president and said, hey, we'd really like to sign this author again. And he said, no, again. So I couldn't sign Caitlin. So I sent her this email saying, this is all, these are all of the changes we'd like you to make. And I can't offer representation at this time. And I think at that <laughs> point, Caitlin was like, well, okay. Uh, well, I don't want to continue making changes for you. Um, thanks for your time. Well, that's actually something you kind of have to think about on the author side, too, because if this goes for um, contracts as well, because a lot of times editors will give you what's called an R&R, and that's what um, what Ben was giving me as well. For our for our listeners, what is an R&R? What, is it, what does it stand it's for? It's a revise and return, right? Revise, revise and, re yeah. and resubmit. Yeah. Resubmit. Resubmit. There we go. See, I don't even know what it means. <laughs> and And if somebody is not willing to commit then they're asking you to do a lot of work without actually saying they're either going to pay you or represent you. And so that's kind of a calculated risk you can take as an author if you feel like the feedback is going in the right direction. But it's also kind of a risky one. Like I have a friend who had an editor who was really interested in this book that she wrote. And it's an amazing book and I really hope it gets published. But the editor kept asking her again and again and again to revise it but hadn't actually offered her a contract and then eventually didn't take it on and so she had revised it from the top to bottom it was in verse at first and she changed it over so it wasn't in verse and then did this and then did that like she went through so much to get this book to where this editor wanted it but the editor never actually bought it so she did a lot of work with no with no payout yeah and generally as an agent I recommend to not do revise and resubmits unless you have a really solid relationship with the agent or editor and you have some sort of handshake agreement that if you do these changes then it will either be taken to acquisitions or um, 
uh, represented. That's a risk. Um, <laughs> I've gotten killed in acquisitions before. <laughs> yeah, I've also gotten killed in acquisitions before a lot. I kill people in acquisitions. <laughs> well done, yeah. Kristen. Well done. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kristen, do you want to tell us what acquisitions are really quick? Because you're the, the editor in the group here. Sure. Uh, so general, well, it's a little different at Deseret Book because we don't require agents, which I have lots of thoughts about that. And uh, if anyone wants to talk to me about it, you're welcome to. <laughs> Um, but, uh, so basically we get a manuscript, um, sometimes it's represented by an agent, sometimes it's not, we look at it, we have outside reviewers read it. And then, um, when I find a manuscript I think is really strong, I have to take it to a team of some of them are the marketing, they're an executive, they're, it's just a team of anybody who might have a stake in this book. And basically, uh, I have to argue for why we should take it on and they can raise concerns. And sometimes we have to send a really nice letter to these people, to the authors and say like, I'm sorry, we can't take it. Uh, try somewhere else. And sometimes you can move on to the next step. And basically a book can get killed at any step uh, in this process. And it's really depressing if you're really invested in the book. <laughs> um, but it's also kind of fun because you get to see just how many people are part of book creation and the answer really is it's a ton yeah generally when uh at presses in new york city um the acquisition stage is after the point where an editor likes a book enough to want to buy it so me as the agent i submit books i submit the books that i represent to the editors that i know and have relationships with in in new york and i guess around the world too um mostly in New York right now. And if the editors that I submit the book to, if they want to buy the book, they have to get it approved by their team. So they take it to what's called the acquisitions meeting and the people on the acquisitions board or team will review the, the material. The, the editor will do a presentation about the book and they'll say, these are the reasons why I wanna buy this book. And if people in the room like the idea of the book, the acquisitions uh, team will, will run a profit and loss to see if they will uh, be able to make any money off of the book, or I guess to see if they'll, if they think they'll be able to make any money off of the book. And yeah, that's the acquisitions meeting. So like Kristen said, a lot of things can have to go right in an acquisitions meeting in order for a book to get taken on. Yeah. I mean, an editor can really love a book, but then like the sales team can come in and be like, what's the pitch? And if there isn't like a really clear one, then they can torpedo stuff or like there's lots of different things that could could go wrong. Mm -hmm. That raises a question for me about Baker's Guide to, Robert's Pi to Robert Pie, um, which is like when you guys put it on submission, how many uh, editors do you normally submit to? Um, yeah. Well, I guess I prefer to send books out to 10 to 15 editors at a time, uh, starting with, obviously, the, the people that I most want to sell the book to, and that's called the first round of submissions. And when I finish up that first round, hopefully it ends in a sale, but if it doesn't end in a sale, then I'll go on to the second round of submissions to the editors that I might not know as well, or the places that wouldn't be able to offer as good of a deal, and with with Baker's Guide, I think we submitted it to like 12 or 13 places initially. And luckily, in the first round of submissions, one of the editors offered to buy the book. And 
I don't know a whole lot about her acquisitions process that she went through, but she came to us with an offer. Um, and then I negotiated with her for the, uh, the base points of the deal. So things like the advance and what kind of territories the book would be sold in, uh, if the book would, if the deal would have film rights attached to it and audiobook rights and that kind of thing. And so those are kind of the basic negotiations that I work with the editor with. I just want to interject really quick. A lot of times what they're negotiating for is we're trying to retain rights because the more rights you retain, like if you keep your foreign rights and your audio rights, though that never happens anymore, and your um, your film rights, then you can sell them to somebody else. If you sell it as part of your book deal, <clears throat> excuse me, then that means they own the rights and they can sell them. And then you don't get as big of a, a cut of the deal. Yeah. So this is all basically just business talk about how a book deal happens and because it's a business we're talking about how to monetize a product and the products that we work with are books so the way that the way that we have figured out to maximize an author's potential profit on a book is to retain as much of the intellectual property rights as possible so with a book, you have a lot of different rights that you can exploit. You obviously have your uh, your physical copy books. Theme park rights. Say that again? <laughs> the, your, your theme park your rights. Your theme park rights. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Those are the ones you go after you first. You retain your theme park rights. <laughs> there really are theme park rights on all Yes, there the are. Contracts. There are theme park rights in the contracts. <laughs> We've kept those. For some reason, they didn't want them. <laughs> I do not want to go to the last star burning theme park. That's... <laughs> terrifying i mean i think there is one it's called like antarctica or <laughs> it's antarctica with guns and, and zombies very and nice. zombies. um so if if i as an agent can retain the subsidiary rights to your work like the audiobook rights and the film rights and the foreign rights then i'll be able to go and uh sell licenses to other corporations to produce other types of media about that product. So an audiobook, a film, a foreign book. A graphic novel. Um, and all of those all of those projects are things that benefit the author without the author having to do any more work on the project. So the author's work is done, but if I make an audiobook deal, then more money will just flow in for that project's property. And that's the goal when we make a book deal. So it takes a while to actually get to that point, though, where we're ready for submissions. And with Evie Baker, because it wasn't my front burner project, because I had books that were contracted at the time, um, and so I had to work on those, it took years and years and years yeah. of editing and so many readers. Like, I think it went through this writing group, and then it went through, I mean, Ben gave me notes, and I had... Um, Emily R. King gave me notes toward the end, and she's the one who actually convinced me to change it into middle grade, because before it was this awful tweeny sort of thing. And, um, I mean, it's not awful. I think tween books are kind of fun. However, the the market is not buying them right now, I guess. I don't know. Ever. They never and buy so them. They never buy no. them. At least the editors are not buying them. I personally think that my daughter could benefit from some tweeny books. I think a lot of readers can, okay. for sure. But this is where we come into the, again, it's the business. and so, <laughs> It's a product that they're yeah. trying to sell, yeah. Well, <laughs> what, what were we saying about the, it took a while to get to the process of submitting Evie Baker, 
Right. It took a while because we went through rounds of edits. You gave me, I think, developmental edits. And then even while I was working on those ones or while I was waiting for Ben to read it, I got edits from other people. It took years and years and years of editing before it got into shape to actually be submitted to editors. And then we submitted it. And then what happened? I don't know. We got a book deal. And then well, it. Well, it, yep. it, it was an interesting process, too, because I think um, Caitlin had to kind of push me along with this book. Um, at the time, I was going through a severe... And I don't even know if I've talked to you about this, Caitlin. I'm sorry. I probably should have. <laughs> Coming out about it on the podcast, I was going through some a, a really depressive time in my life and working was really hard. And so um, Caitlin was like, Ben, I need you to give me the edits for this book because I really want to go out on submission with it. And that's not really something that an, that an author should have to do with their agent. They should be able to just say, here's my book, give me the edits when you're done. And the agent should be able to just go do it. And Caitlin was really persistent in saying, I really want to publish this book. And obviously evident because she did a really good job on it. And like she said before, it's one of her favorite books that she's written. And for me, as an agent, I, I don't know how to say this. It was just a really hard thing for me to do to be able to pick up work when I was going through so much, uh, so many mental health issues. And so I think it just, once Caitlin told me, like, this is really important to me, please do it. And I was like, yeah, of course it is. I need to be doing my job, too. I picked it up. And in a couple of weeks, we started we, we had it on submission. And um, after she had finished her her revisions that I gave her, then Holly at Macmillan bought it. So, I mean, it's just a lesson in perseverance to to fight for what you believe in when people that you're collaborating with aren't meeting their deadlines that are being set that if you believe in your projects, just go for them and push for them to happen and follow up and be persistent. Well, I mean, and that's, I mean, on both the persistent side and also on the, you're dealing with real people who have lives who are doing stuff and might need to, like, you need to think about people in this industry as people. I think it's really easy on the author side to see an agent as a door mm -hmm. rather than as a person. Yeah. Um. And that's not how any business relationship works. And so it's important to be aware of what is going on, both as an author and saying, I, I really need to get this done, but also being able to, to realize that people are people, especially right now. My goodness. Yeah. This year, this year. has just been really <laughs> exciting. And actually, I shouldn't say this, so I'll probably just cut it out. I have had two books that I've had to do edits on that I've had overlapping deadlines for the last like six months and then also move. I moved across the country twice. Well, I moved two states away and then I moved across the country just this week and I had books that were due on top of it. <laughs> and the whole time I'm trying to be a good author who's like, I'm turning my stuff in on time and I'm never going to miss a deadline because the, the easier you are to work with, the more likely someone is going to want another buy, want to buy another book from mm -hmm. you. If you're not the diva author, who's like always asking for things and doing stuff that's crazy. Um, but like, there have been some really exciting deadlines, like the ones that I have next week. And so sometimes <laughs> people would remember that I'm a person, too. I'm sure they do. And I'm sure they'd be really nice if I asked for extensions. And I'm fine. But it's good to remember. That said, if you ever do need a deadline extension, and this is this goes for more than just Caitlin. When, when you're working in the industry, 
um, it's it's critical to to remember that we are all human and that life gets in the way sometimes and that we're working on contract work and that we're not full-time employees. And if you ever need a contract extension, the best thing to do is just to come out and say, I need more time rather than not meeting your, not meeting your deadline. Because Absolutely. I mean, I, th- and this is a lesson I've learned f- over the past several years. The more, the more I'm open with my clients about the state I'm in and my own mental health and the, the types of projects that I'm working on and how long my reading list is, uh, the more accepting they are of the timeline that I give them. When I say, hey, I'm actually going to need like three months on this because I'm going through some, some things right now and also I have like 12 books that I need to read, then it's a lot easier for them to take that and say, okay, I can wait. Um, so yeah, if you need a... A, a deadline extension ask for it absolutely I actually did have an extension on my first one I think however I think you have to remember that there usually are consequences that go with that if you're on a publishing schedule like if you get an extension that's more than a little bit then your book will probably get pushed later but that's an okay thing and people usually understand and mm-hmm. that's a great great note to, to tie up on <laughs> thank you so much Aaliyah so disingenuous but I, I really agree I think <laughs> talking now let's go ahead and transition okay i mean like meeting deadlines actually kind of ties into the first line of this story that we're critiquing so (laughs) there you go there you go so a quick review of how we critique we try to be non-prescriptive but you can see the text of the submission for yourself and all of our notes on it on our website litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation if you would like a first chapter critique from us you can find our submission guidelines there so quick summary of this week's chapter On her way to meet her friend, a girl who lives in a biodome on an inhospitable planet finds a mysterious pendant. And also a small note, it wasn't until after we had chosen the submission and already sent it to Ben that we realized it was a rewrite of a submission we've critiqued before. And we're really glad our feedback is useful and we're happy to critique this piece again because our submission guidelines didn't specify that we don't offer resubmissions, but going forward we won't be offering critiques of works we've already seen. But there's a lot to love in this piece. So let's go ahead and jump into And for what it's worth, Leah and I hadn't read it yet. So <laughs> Cameron I, and I, read I also it haven't read it, so you'll be getting <laughs> new perspectives from multiple fronts. Exactly. Well, exactly. and also, it, it's actually significantly different than we read it before, but we do try to um, give the opportunity to more than one specific set of people who are... I take the I blame. Mean, I, I didn't know. I didn't <laughs> listen to their hot seat critique. <laughs> I'm a bad host. It's fine. <laughs> Okay, so what do we like about this submission? You guys go first. There's ben, this... what do you like? Oh, sorry, go ahead, ben. Oh, sorry, Leah. Well, I mean, the prose itself is really nice. The writer obviously knows how to write well, and I can tell that they've practiced. Um, it, the The world building seems very well thought out as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, I really like the concept of these biodomes. I lived in Tucson near the biosphere for a really long time so this is something that's always been like really interesting to me and I think uh, a lot of the details that we get here about how like Eleanor's dad is the biodiversity engineer I think they're really cool um, little bits of world building yeah she has this cool phone that goes around her wrist and gives her notifications about when it's going to rain and it tells her down to the minute when to expect the rain and I just thought that was super cool um I really liked all I mean this character 
who's in the in the first chapter, Eleanor, she has all sorts of references to time, which I really liked because she's really worried about being late, which I think said a lot about her character. It said that the only time she'd ever been late before was the day her mother disappeared, which was really intriguing as well. And um, I feel like it was it was a really nice small way to both point to something that happened before that we were going to get into, but also to say a whole lot about the main character. I mean, I have other thoughts about that for when we transition to to feedback, um, but I, I thought that those were really skillfully done. Well, and depending on how these two stories end up connecting, time as a theme makes sense because in these first two in these first 10 pages, you meet two separate characters living two completely different lives, and time seems like a thing that could connect them. What are some things that could use a second look? Ben, what do you think? Well, I think the narrative style is one thing that I would advise the author to take a look at. Um, the first couple of paragraphs of each chapter have a very narrative tone to them, almost like I'm reading Peter Pan, and then it jumps into a more point of view story um which is really jarring it, it sounds like the author has tried hard to come up with a way to stand out and it shows that way so i'd advise removing that and just having one uh, very cohesive way of storytelling so the first few paragraphs um i definitely agree with what you said ben they kind of feel like they're in a different narrative style they talk a lot about the reasons that she was late and how she's late now but um, for me, the first few paragraphs, almost the whole first page, seemed to be largely unrelated to what was going on in that scene. Um, so getting all the explanations of why Eleanor shouldn't have been late, but was, before we're grounded in a scene, bogged the first page down for me a little bit. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the beginning of the story specifically doesn't really even match what happens in the rest of the chapter at all. Um, we kind of get set up for this you know, she's late. Uh, we don't really know what she's late for until at the end of the first page, which I think is a mistake. Um, and then we don't even get to see her arrive for the thing that she's late for. Um, and that that thing kind of becomes a an afterthought once the rest of the chapter happens. So it feels kind of like so a It's kind of a misaligning of, of signpostings. We have this initial want to get somewhere on time and the conflict of not wanting to be late but ultimately mm -hmm. they end up not being important at all um i don't think it's any i don't think anyone will say it's a problem to have something come up that's more important but yes. just discarding it completely it, it, in the beginning of a story it's hyper important to build trust with your readers so when you make the narrative promise that the being on time the late is important to this person you want to follow through on it even if you're going to mo immediately move on to something that's more important well, and I, as I was reading, had this setup where Eleanor is going to meet her friend at Castle Rock. That sounds super cool. And she is really worried about being late. And I was so looking forward to meeting Leah and to, like, see what kids do in a biodome. Like, I wanted to see what would happen. It, it was reading, like, middle grade at the beginning to me. And so I just wanted to see her, like, and how she lives and her dad, who's obviously traumatized about their mom leaving and or his wife and her mother. Anyway. And, like, I I just, I wanted to be able to know who Eleanor was a little bit more before we got into, like, changing the norm. Like, I feel like 
so she finds this necklace and it's it's very coincidental and I mean I totally would have been cool with it if she just picked it up and was like huh interesting and like took it with her but no like stuff happens and it it feels like the beginning of an inciting incident which it kind of is it leads to something else happening and I'm like I've only had like a page with this girl I don't know anything about her yet and so it just felt like it moved fast enough that I wasn't really even sure what world we were in because it changed into something else so fast yeah I agree I think something we I we talked about discussing in this podcast as part of discussing Caitlin and my journey to getting her book published was discussing the beginning of the story and starting in the right place I don't think we quite got there um but that's something that that's something that Caitlin and I worked on in A Baker's Guide to Robert Pie, and it's also something that I would would have wanted to talk about with the other book that we're currently working on together as well. Because getting the beginning of your story right, it's both incredibly hard and incredibly important. Um, you need to have, I, I guess, you need to be extremely deliberate with how you write the beginning of your story, so that the rest of the story is set up and flows naturally from it. And so having a coincidental object that is picked up that incites the rest of the story happen on like the third page or something is not nearly enough setup time for us to get grounded in the world that we're reading about, about the in, in the characters that we're, that we're trying to get attached to. And it, I think it would need a second look of you know, how this all is happening. And, and I get the sense that th- these two chapters that we both read are somehow interconnected. Uh, these two characters might be connected through space or time, uh, living in different time periods, experiencing the same events. I'm not sure exactly what, but I get the sense that they're tied together. And I really like that about this story. I think it's fascinating, but it has to be done more deliberately i need a more deliberate execution of that in order for it to work properly i imagine i imagine there's some people listening here going okay but wait you all are always saying to move the inciting incident as close to the beginning as possible and i think we're gonna we're gonna hold to that but this particular inciting incident we've mentioned it at least right now it feels like happenstance so you have the issue this inciting incident doesn't tell us anything about the character Mm mm-hmm so, like, I'm going to go Hunger Games for a second. Inciting incident, Prim's name gets drawn. Katniss says, I volunteer as tribute. That tells us an enormous amount about her character. Tripping in the rain and finding a coin doesn't tell us anything about your character. So, it, it builds on what we already knew about Katniss, too. We knew she loved her family. We knew that, like, her, her whole life was, like, to help them survive. And then, like, in that moment... I mean, you knew what she was going to do, but it was still heartbreaking, right? And I think Cameron touches on a really important point about inciting incidents is, you know, it tells you something about your character, but inciting incidents have to be intricately related to who your character is and what your character wants. Um, And if we don't know who your character is and what your character wants within the first page or two, putting your inciting incident on page three is not going to make us want to continue reading. Well, I mean, I think inciting incidents have to either be, sorry, Aaliyah, (laughs) inciting incidents either have to be like a change that forces the character to fix the problem that came up or them finding out something that they need to do in order to get something they want. Like it it can't be uh, I stumbled in the forest and now I'm in a new world sort of thing. 
because that, like everybody has been saying, it doesn't connect us enough to the character to have it matter. Which, Caitlin, now that you say something like that, um, should we critique a little bit of Second Star here? <laughs> do we want to do that? Maybe we should... Uh, I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm just kidding. I know we're over no. time. <laughs> Might as well. No. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Hurting cats. <laughs> Thanks to this author for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. And Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Our next guest will be Sarah McCabe, an editor at Simon & Schuster slash McElderry. If you McElderry. Like I learned that it's Mac- McElderry. McElderry. <laughs> oh, that is news to me. Very cool. Very cool. Well, if you'd like a critique from Sarah, submit your work by February 11th. If you like what you've heard, please check out our new Patreon page where you can get bonus content like hot seat critiques, early episode access, and a writing group experience with Lit Service crew members. It takes a whole team of creatives to make Lit Service, and patrons help us keep going. Thank you to all of you who have already become patrons and are keeping us on the air. Thanks to our assistant, Chelsea Mortensen, who does all our social media, and Craig Harris, who's on sound design. We couldn't do the podcast without them. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. Thanks for listening to Lit Service. We'll see you in two weeks.